Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we spend time here, that you would use your Holy Bible to be a teacher for us, that you would give us of your spirit and help us to understand what is true. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm thankful. Last night when Brother Bachelor was speaking, he literally gave an introduction to our series this hour here. Did any of you notice that? He was speaking about the Holy Spirit, about our desperate need for the Holy Spirit, and that is what we're speaking about today, is the outpouring of the latter rain. I'd like to begin by just reviewing a wee bit of history before we get to a Bible study. Ellen White mentioned that there was a time when the latter rain began to be poured out on our church. That was in the 1888 experience in Minneapolis. I think probably better than half of us were aware of that. And yet it's true. When does truth affect us? It's when it has our attention. I'd like it to get, us, get our attention for a moment to think about the fact that the latter rain began to fall. It's an incredible truth to imagine that God began the work of the fourth angel, the loud cry, that he started the process of finishing the work. Isn't that what we want to happen? And if we could just know why or how he chose the time that he did, the situation he did, maybe we could do our part to bring that experience again. Before the rain, there are two points I'd like to point out, two ideas. One is that God had been building up truth for some time. That is that there was a progression of truth that had been developing. I mean, we can illustrate briefly, but with Martin Luther, people have come to understand that the Bible was the source of all truth. Now, I'll just write the Bible here. We had learned that righteousness is not based on anything that we can earn, any merit of our own. I'm speaking of we as in Christianity in general. We had built on top of that foundation. We'd come to the time of uh, John Wesley, but before him, Roger Williams. Roger Williams taught us that there should be a separation between church and state. He was the one who promoted the truth, this idea that truth is progressive, and what our fathers accepted is not enough light for us. I'm only paraphrasing to you the book Great Controversy, about four chapters of it. Then came along John Wesley, and he brought out the fact that the gospel includes not only justification, but sanctification, and that sanctification as a process not only has a beginning in my life, but it can have an end. And the end of sanctification, Wesley called with the Bible writers, perfection. After Wesley had taught this idea of sanctification by faith, we came to the message of the judgment taught all over the world by the various Advent pioneers, Joseph Wolf and William Miller being two of the most prominent. They added the idea of the judgment. And I hope that you can see a sensibility in the progression of truth that you wouldn't want to know about the judgment 
<clears throat> until you understood the reality of sanctification by faith, that God did not ask us to prepare for his coming until he taught us as a people that it's possible to prepare. After this message that we're in the judgment came, the next development was to show that the judgment is based on the Ten Commandments. And that here we came to the Sabbath truth, the message of the seal of God and that process of, of the law being sealed in our mind. That was in the early 1840s and 50s. The progression of truth was entirely sensible. And God was leading up leading up in this progression to what Ephesians 4 calls the full stature of Jesus, building up the church. The church was ready for that last building block. If I could summarize all of this, the beginning of the latter reign came as a message. And the message was a message that was building on top of what God had been doing in the church for 300 years. Besides that point where it says truth built, where it says rumors circulated, it's referring to the fact that Satan understands the purpose of the testimonies in the church. Maybe you understand it too. What does Ephesians 4 say about the purpose of the gifts? They're designed, for example, to keep us from being blown around by every wind of doctrine. They're designed to build us up or edify us and bring us to the measure, the full stature. You've read Ephesians 4. So Satan hates the testimonies. And if you've read in Matthew 5, what is the standard way that prophets are persecuted? When it says, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for so persecuted they the... Uh, I'm starting to put the last two Beatitudes together in my head. So I'll skip to the end of the last one. It's by speaking all manner of evil against them falsely. That's the standard way of persecuting prophets. That's been so helpful to me. It's helped me understand why there are so many faulty arguments about Ellen White that are out there. Like the question I might have had otherwise is, wouldn't a little bit of research just annihilate most of these? And the answer is that speaking all manner of evil against them falsely is just the standard method of persecuting prophets, according to the Sermon on the Mount. So in 1888, there was a brother in California, and he observed that Alan White seemed to be friends with A.T. Jones and Brother Wagner, and that her dear son Willie was also friends with these men. And she can, or this person observing concluded that these two young men with their heretical views were poisoning the mind of the prophet. Now, I'll tell you for myself, I've written letters to warn people in various places about other speakers. I can understand where the man's coming from if he believes there's a danger to write ahead and to warn. You ought to be very careful who you warn about. You might warn about someone who teaches the truth. On the other hand, there is a place for warning. Mark those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. I'm referring to the first word, Mark. So this man wrote letters to Battle Creek. I know I'm just so tempted to expand on this, and we won't even get to our Bible study. So 
the summary of the thing is that the rumors were that the prophet was influenced, that her ideas were partly from heaven and partly from these young men and partly from her son. And you know, when you know that what a prophet has written is a mixture of truth and opinion, which part do you figure is the truth? That's it. The part that you agree with must be the inspired part. And, and the part that you don't agree with must be that which came from a human source. So Ellen White has written about this idea. It's still in vogue today. She's written, for example, when Uriah Smith had it, that it would have been easier for her if he had been an avowed infidel than for him to be promoting his view that some of what she wrote was true and some of what she wrote wasn't. Let's start our Bible study. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. And looking in verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. Look at verse 3. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning. He shall come unto us. What does it say? As the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. The idea of Hosea 6.3 is that the latter rain is a special coming of Jesus into our experience. That he is the one who comes to us as the early and the latter rain. And what's the condition in Hosea 6 of him coming? You know there's more than one, isn't there? In the first verse, it's that we repent. That's what turn means, right? Uh, in Greek, it's metanoeo. Literally, it means after thinking. It's order to think again. It's to turn from our old way. Come, let us turn to the Lord. There's pardon there. But is that the only condition in Hosea 6 for receiving? What what say? That's it. It says in verse 3, then follow on to know the Lord. That sometime after my justification... If I'm following on to know the Lord, he will come to me in a special experience of pouring out of the Spirit's power. Turn to me in your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, chapter 1. And we're looking at verse 2 through 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, looking at verse 2. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through, what does it say? The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. If I could just say the main point from over here. It's that when God sent the message, when he was ready to send the latter rain to our church, he sent it as a message about Jesus. 
The latter rain, in the form that it appeared in Acts 2, was like tongues of fire. The way it appeared when Elijah was taken up, we heard last night, was like a chariot of fire. But the way that it appeared in 1888 was as a collection of messages about the Savior. And that's in harmony with what we read in Hosea 6, that he would come unto us. How do we receive the things that pertain to life and godliness? What's it say in 2 Peter? It's through a knowledge of him. It's by knowing him. And look at verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might become partakers of the divine nature. The way we escape the corruption that is ruining everyone around us is through the promises, the power and the promises. But the way we have access to the power and the promises is through a knowledge of him. Or if I could say this whole thing another way, when Jesus sends a message about himself to his church, it's the very thing the church needs to escape the downward trend that is destroying the world. Can you see that just in the passage in 2 Peter? What is it that is corrupting the world? It's lust. The world is sinking lower because of lust. We can escape that corruption through a knowledge of Jesus, and sending that knowledge is, is the way he sent the beginning of the latter rain. I encourage you to email me and ask me to send you a study on the latter rain. I have two studies, one that's a Bible study and one that is a testimony study. I'll write my email address up here. I encourage you to ask for it because I know in this hour that we will get through perhaps 5% of the material that's in those two studies. I think it's better to do that than to try to get through 20 of it and have you just lost the entire time. Does that, can that make any sense to you? So I'm asking that you will email me. These words up here, ask, obey, values, be sent, intercession, repentance, I know my elementary school teacher would say that they aren't parallel in terms of verbs and nouns and adjectives and this kind of thing, but they're one word or two word ideas to summarize how we can have more of the Spirit in our life. Let's turn our Bibles to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10, and we're looking at verse 1. The Bible says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter, verse 1, Zechariah 10, 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every, what's it say? One grass. Do you understand the beauty of the one grass? What God is saying is that when he pours out the latter rain, there isn't there will not be one living, true Christian who is not nourished by that outpouring. What do I observe in this passage? I observe that there is a special time when we should be asking for the latter rain. And don't you know that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. So if he's asked us, if he's told us to ask, is it an obvious thing that it's according to his will? then it's certain that we will receive. 
And yet, there are people that prayed last night in groups for the outpouring of the latter rain, and it did not come last night. Worry not. What we're told by Ellen White, and the references in that study you'll get if you email me, is that not one prayer for the latter rain has ever been lost. I mean that when you ask for the latter rain today, if it comes today, what you're going to receive will be in proportion to your prayer today plus the accumulated prayers of the saints since the time when God has asked us to be praying for the latter rain. And what if one saint invested great intensity and earnestness in his prayer, then to that very extent, the gift will come with that much more intensity, that much more fervency. In other words, you will not waste effort made to pray for the latter rain. Amen. We're probably more familiar with obey. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5 and verse 32. The verse begins, And we are his witnesses of these things. That these things are the basic ideas of the gospel and that Jesus gives repentance to his people. And then it goes on and says, And so also is the Holy Ghost, whom God has given to those that... That passage is so interesting to me. I mean, if you'll think it through, it should be interesting to you. Can I obey God without the Holy Spirit? But who receives the Holy Spirit in Acts 5? Do you see why it's interesting to me? And let me give you some parallels to that that I've observed in my Bible study. Joshua was chosen to be the assistant of Moses, we're told, because he was a man filled with the Spirit. But when he was chosen, hands were laid on Joshua, and the Bible says, and he was filled with the Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, but when he was baptized he received an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then Saul, when he was anointed at the beginning, became a Christian, he could suddenly see he was turned from darkness to light and was filled with the Spirit. But when in Acts, I think it's 19, he was set apart again by a second laying on of hands, he was filled again with the Spirit. What I'm communicating is that the Spirit it's not that you just have the Spirit or you don't have the Spirit. God wants us to have more and more of His Spirit. And if I want to have more of His Spirit, obeying what He has told me to do is one of the conditions plainly taught in the Bible for receiving greater portions of His Spirit. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, and we're looking at verse 9. Hebrews 1, verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. 
Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Why is it that Jesus had more of the Spirit than I? Hebrews 1 teaches it's because of his values. It's because Jesus chose to love righteousness and he chose to hate iniquity. This is, surely these are related. In fact, everything here is probably, could be summed up into one if you really tried to do that. But it's an important idea that it's not enough for me to turn away from an evil. I must choose in my mind to hate the evil. Yes. When he says hate, he didn't really hate it. He just chose not to do it, right? He didn't really have a hate in his heart. I understand your question, and so let me answer it thoroughly, or not thoroughly, more, okay? Um, I'll talk about my own experience, how I feel about, now, some of you are just going to think I'm strange for this, but it's the, the first illustration of my mind, how I feel about pizza. <laughs> Part of me loves pizza. And I, by pizza, I mean the kind you buy normally in a, in a pizza joint. The part of me that loves pizza is, for example, the part that's right in my mouth. <laughs> All right? My tongue loves pizza. The part of my mind that is most sympathetic with my tongue also loves pizza. But there's part of my mind that thinks, I don't want my arteries to be clogged. I don't want my mind to be numbed. I, I don't want to violate the counsel God has given me. That's also part of my mind. So that part of my mind loves pizza, and part of my mind hates pizza. Do you follow me so far what I'm saying? What God is asking of me is that I will talk and act in harmony with this part of my mind and not with this part. So if you ask me, I will tell you, I hate pizza. <laughs> it doesn't mean there's been any change here. Do you follow what I'm saying? Did Jesus hate iniquity? In the same way that I hate pizza. He understood what it causes. He knew where it would lead. He understood its grossness. And because of that, he chose to talk and act as if he hated it. And that's the right thing to do. It's what I want to do. I want to have more of the Spirit. Be sent looks like it's highlighted. It's just that there's a, an attempt to erase something underneath it. But what was underneath it was anointing. You know, it's very interesting to me that, that we do so little anointing in our church. When you read about the very foundational, the basic foundation ideas of Christianity in Hebrews, you know, you have baptism, repentance from dead works, judgment, and one of those foundational things is the laying on of hands. I mean, you read that there, it's just one of the foundations. And when you go through the book of Acts, You'll find baptism, 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 repentance, 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 judgment, 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 judgment. You know what else you find? Laying on of hands, of hands, of hands, of hands, of hands. These were the foundational basic ideas. 
what was going on in the book of Acts? It's that when God sends me on a mission, he sends me routinely on missions that are far beyond my ability. In my own experience, I've never been sent on a mission yet that was within my ability. <laughs> but why is he not afraid to send me on missions beyond my ability? You remember what Jesus did with the disciples? Doug referred to it last night. He blew on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. That's in the connection with his sending them out to do the work. What he communicated is that if he gives me a job, he will give me what I need to do it. In accepting the calling, I receive the equipping. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? When Bazalil was filled with the Spirit, he became professional at metallurgy. You know what I'm talking about? That is, God, you can read about it, he was filled with the Spirit, and suddenly he was able to work in gold and silver and precious metals. Then there were ladies there, and they were filled with the Spirit, and suddenly they were able to do the most beautiful work of seamstress artistry that you've ever seen. This is for making his sanctuary. It was to be the most beautiful sanctuary, but no one had that kind of skill. Was the church suddenly incapable of doing what God asked? With the asking, God blessed individuals with the very gifts they needed to do the work that needed to be done. So in the New Testament, in Corinth, people are gifted with the gift of tongues. Why? It's this idea. It was because they were sent to speak to people to whom they could not talk. But God is not limited by the abilities of his people, and he gives gifts. What does the Spirit do? The gift of the Spirit makes up the deficiency between the skills needed and the skills possessed. The summary of what I'm saying and be sent is if you want more of the Spirit, go on a mission. I mean, accept the call that God gives you and ask him to equip you, and this is his standard method of operation. Accept this. To send yourself on a mission isn't the idea of how it works. You want to get together with your church and to be a congregation. As a congregation, you want to be a body of individuals and to set aside one or more, maybe each of you for a purpose, to set someone aside to serve the church in a capacity, that's God's chosen way of working through the church. You know, this is how Paul received the gift of the Spirit. It wasn't when he was blinded. It was when the church worked together and Paul himself was sent to someone else to receive, was it because Ananias was more holy than Paul? It's because God did not want to make us into individual atoms. He was looking for the church to be interconnected. Really, each one of these could itself be an hour of fruitful Bible study. This one could be two hours. <laughs> and um, at Audioverse, I have two sermons on this that I just recommend you would listen to. It will make me feel better about how brief I'm going to be here. In Joel 2... Let's turn there and just look at it. Joel chapter 2. Uh, 
intercession, or latter rain and intercession, or intercession and latter rain, something like that, one and two. Joel, chapter two. We're just going to observe a few points. I so recognize that sound. <laughs> I use, I lead call putter teams, and that is just a very regular sound in my experience. Joel 2, verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart. Maybe you've read this in early writings where Ellen White saw a plain vision. In, those, in that vision, she saw two companies. One of those companies was agonizing with God in prayer, pleading for his help, putting away their sins. The other was comparatively indifferent. And what she saw in figure was light and angelic power move away from this class, focus on this class, eventually the seal of God was placed over this class. What she saw was the very same thing pictured in Leviticus 23 and Leviticus 16. You remember what was there? Who is it that is cast out of the church in the Day of Atonement? It's those that do not participate in the work of agonizing over their sins. Those who are not putting away their sins. Now, brothers and sisters, this is one of my disappointments in my experience in my life. Is it seems to me that this is Adventism 101. The very fundamental idea of the difference about living now and living in 1830 is that this is the special time for agonizing over our sins and putting them away. It seems like every Adventist ought to know this, like every first grader ought to know that the first letter of the alphabet is A. And yet we don't seem to be aware of it in our experience. Still, it's true that in Joel 2, it's one of the first two conditions of receiving the early and the latter rain. The second is in verse 17. Let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord. Do you understand in verse 17 that God's people are divided there into two metaphoric classes? There's the class to understand, and they are called the priest. And there's the class that is meriting judgment, and they're also called your people. Can you see that in verse 17? What are the priests saying? Spare who? That's it, God's people. The priests recognize the unfaithful as being God's people, and they're praying to God, please don't destroy your people. And in interceding for God's people, the, this class receive the incredible blessing of the early and the latter rain. It's similar to what you read in the book of Job. I talked about this for AFCO to go, and I just so forgot to read one of the key verses when I was speaking to them. But I'm glad some of you are here. 
We talked about Job 42, verses 7 through 9, where God told the three friends to go to Job and ask him to pray for you. But we didn't come to verse 10, where it says, Job 42, 10, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. What does the book of Job teach about the Job-like generation? It's that they're called to a work of intercession. Their work of intercession brings a blessing to the, their friends. Namely, their friends are spared an immediate or sooner judgment. But it redounds to a blessing to Job himself. He receives what his heart has been looking for when his heart goes out to give others what they need. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. I had a scary moment just a few seconds ago. I looked at that clock, and I suddenly had this feeling like I was supposed to end at 10. <laughs> and it, but then I remembered it's not that way and I'm much happier <laughs> Proverbs 1 we're looking at verse 23 the Bible says turn you at my reproof behold I will pour out my spirit unto you and I will make known my words unto you. I can't think of any promise that has become more precious to me in all of Scripture. It seems so simple and direct that God has said, Eugene, I'm offering to straighten out your life. I've provided counsels and testimonies abundantly, and when you spend a few minutes reading them, you'll find a reproof of instruction related to you. And what I'm asking of you is that when you find the reproof, that you harmonize your life with what I've said, turn you at my reproof, and what has he promised in, re in reaction to that? To pour out his spirit upon me in greater measure, to help me to understand his holy Bible. Isn't it as precious a promise as you could find in the scripture? Let me summarize what we've said so far, and then I'm going to give you a three-minute break to stand up and talk while I try to find key statements I want to read to you from the testimonies. We've said that God is anxious, or I should have said, that he's anxious to give us his Holy Spirit. There are activities and choices I can make that are related to the volume of the Spirit's work in my life. If now at this time I will ask him for the latter rain, at some point, maybe today and maybe at a later time, the Spirit will be poured out in such measure, in an abundance that is proportionate to how the faithful have asked. If I will obey, turn when he sends me, will choose to do just what he said, and will learn to love the things he said are good, and to hate the things that he said are bad. I feel like preaching on that for about a minute. 
angels and Adam and Eve were tested in a way similar to the test that I'm going to face. I mean that only Satan has to guide by brute force. The reason to obey Satan is because if you don't, you will get hurt. That's not a good enough reason. I'm not recommending it. <laughs> but the way that Jesus leads is by gentle counsel. And how, how unheavenly minded it would be to not do what Jesus recommends because he did not command it. It would be relating to the counsel of Jesus the way that earthlings relate to the pressure of Satan. Angels get their joy out of doing what he has recommended. I mean, looking to see what might make him more happy. To please him is enough to cause them to change their course of action. They volunteered to lay down their life, not because he asked for it. He did not ask for it. It was because they did not want him to be unhappy or to suffer. So what must it look like to our angels when we read something of the testimony of Jesus? It doesn't positively say you must or else, but it indicates it would make our Savior happy. And we treat it very lightly since it's not absolutely required. Do you follow what I'm communicating? That just isn't the way that angels are led. Why did Jesus have more of the Spirit than others? Because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. He wants to send us. And if he sends us like he sent the apostles even just a few days after they had betrayed him, in the act of sending us, he will equip us for the work that he gives us to do. The pouring out of his spirit may give us skills that others found from a secular source. That is, maybe they could learn Phoenician by studying the university, but we might be given it a different way. Maybe they could learn how to work in metal or in a seamstry. I don't know if that's a word, but they could learn to do that kind of work. Can you learn that from secular sources? You can. But God is not dependent on the secular, natural acquirements of his church for the great work that must be done. And he's willing to give us what we need so that we can do it, if only we would get out to work. I watch this routinely in the literature work. I shouldn't go into another sermon. And how do I learn more about the Holy Bible? Under what condition will he teach me more about his Bible and fill me with his spirit? That's it. It's to understand that my life, I don't want to know, I don't want to know me. I don't want to discover myself because self is so transitory and tentative. I really want to discover what's right and conform self to that. And in doing that, we will receive more of his spirit. Let's bow our heads for a prayer and take a short break. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking a gift for myself of efficiency in finding which testimonies to share. 
And I'm asking that you would bless us by that spirit that can bring back to our minds the things that you have taught us. I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.